Welcome to Encouraging Truths for Today. We're glad to bring you this message from First Baptist Church in Crockett, Texas. Now please join us as we learn to grow deeper in our relationship with God and each other. Deanna and I have spent uh, the majority of this year focusing on family history. We have been learning a lot about um, her father and, and his ancestry uh, through him and then through uh, the rest of his family and what a joy that's been. And, and then we today stand looking to the future knowing that history will soon be made in our family when uh, that precious little girl is born to Kobe and Brittany. And so we've been thinking a lot about family history and the movement from generation to generation. Um, so as we were with Deanne's father and uh, his family after his home going, I was reflecting on how much I had learned and how much Deanne had learned about his family. And I had the thought, you know, I know about a little bit about my father's family, but the Dickinson side of things, I, I really didn't know much. And there were so many questions because every family has a family historian, don't they? And we all think, well, we can ask so-and-so, but then so-and-so is no longer here and all of that history goes away. And that had happened in our family. So there was no real source of direction in finding that and until one day I walked into the church office after lunch and somebody handed me a, a large envelope. I couldn't imagine what it was and I almost threw it away because we get a lot of unsolicited, unsolicited wacky books about crazy things in the church office and, and I thought well it's, it's hand uh, addressed is probably not very important, and I, I literally almost just threw it away, and then I thought, well, I'll, I'll open it and just see what it is. And when I opened it, I, I had opened a treasure chest. There was a lady that I've never met, uh, a lady that I don't know anything about how she was connected to our family until I got that package, and it had several decades of research she had done on the Dickinson family. And I began to learn about my, my past. I began to, to find out things like uh, I had a great aunt named Niner Pearl. Isn't that a beautiful name, Niner Pearl? I suggested that to the kids, and they said, we'll keep looking for a good name for the baby. Just strange things like that and, and how our family... Uh, developed and everything, but not only did I learn things about the past, I, I began to learn some things about, about me. Because I began to ask the question, why would she send this to me? She had been a formal, former church secretary and somehow had, had found me as a pastor and I thought, well, maybe that's why, but, but why... Why me, not someone else in the family? And then I began to reflect on that and I realized from my father and his siblings, I'm the only male and 
literally my sister and I were the only children born to that generation of Dickinsons. And I'm the only male heading forward, so not only did it teach me a lot about my my past, but taught me a lot about my present. In that, uh, our history doesn't spread out too far yet. And so it's been a fascinating journey to not only discover things about the past, but discover things about myself. And I think that's true when we read the genealogy of Jesus. Yes, we learn great truths about the past, but it, it points forward to what Christ will do in our lives. When you think about how small uh, the branches go right now from, from me as a Dickinson into the future, I've got two sons, one grandson now, one granddaughter. Just think about this. When the genealogy got to Jesus, it just stopped. Because there was nothing to be added, nothing to go forward with. He was the eternal God, the Son. Isn't that amazing? And so it it all built up up to him. Everything looks back at him, and we all look forward to him. Everything centers on the person of Jesus. So as we've gone through the prophecies, I've tried to to look at even the genealogy of Jesus through those prophetic eyes of the Old Testament. Were these people in this list somehow given identity and recognition in the prophecies that made their name and the list take on a new meaning? One of the hindrances we have when we read scripture is is we look at it through 21st century eyes. And so we have to do great work to, to get back to think mentally, okay, what was it like in the first century? What was life like then? And, and what would be the significance of these events? And uh, we don't think in a Jewish mindset either, do we? But when the Jews read some of this, it really got their attention because it was speaking about significant people that pointed to the most significant one who would ever be born, and that would be the Messiah. So even as this was written and distributed to the Jewish world in hopes that they would be drawn to Christ, even this genealogy would have great significance to them because this is their family. This is their heritage. These are the ones in which they had found great hope because throughout scripture some of these people were mentioned in prophecy and given great clarity as to what and who the Messiah would be. And so that's what I want us to do today. I I want us to try to look at it as if as much as possible from the Jewish perspective and how would these names have impacted their lives beginning to hear how it began to come together pointing toward the Messiah. So here's the sermon in a sentence and we're going to unpack this entire sentence over the next few weeks. God loves people and works through them with providential precision beyond the brokenness 
and failure in their past by pouring out his mercy and grace to exalt his son Jesus Christ and to fulfill his eternal plan of redemption of redeeming all who believe in him. Now that's a mouthful. Let's read that together and just get this concept in our mind. God loves people and works through them with providential precision beyond the brokenness and failure in their past by pouring out his mercy and grace to exalt his son Jesus Christ and to fulfill his eternal plan of redeeming all who believe in him. Now that's a mouthful, but it it really is a, it's a long sentence, but it's a a short abbreviated summary of what we're going to find here in the genealogy of Jesus as we connect it back to prophecies in the Old Testament. Because remember, Matthew was building a bridge from the Old Testament world into the New Testament world. And he was showing from the, New Testament, from the Old Testament scriptures how things were fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. So let's, let's look together at this and we'll look primarily at verses 1 through 5 and we'll connect that with other verses today. So let's look at Matthew 1, 1 through 5. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez begot Hezron, and Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Amenadab, Amenadab begot Nashon, and Nashon begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab, Boaz begot Obed by Ruth, and Obed begot Jesse. Let's pray together. Father, it's obvious that this um, list is filled with names that are unusual to us, terms that are rather archaic in the idea of begetting someone. But Father, we thank you that your word is more relevant than tomorrow's news. And so we pray that you would please speak to us from the pages of your word. Because unless you speak, I have nothing at all to say. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So first of all, I want us to focus on that initial statement, God loves people. If you've ever read through the Bible or begun that journey, you'll you'll notice that there are a variety of lists of people and and tribes and uh, soldiers and 
All these names come forth in the pages of Scripture. And as God inspired people to write that over centuries, one thing rings true, and that is God loves people, and he works in the lives of people. And so as you take a panoramic view of this genealogy, verses 1 through 17, before we dig into verses 1 through 5, one thing is so true, and that is that God loves people. People are important to God. And here's the question. If people are important to God, should they not be important to the church? Yes. That which is on God's heart should be on our heart. So let me ask you another question. Do you love people? Now, Some of you may have thought, as I might at times, there are certain people I love. But the reality is God loves people. And when Jesus saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion. Many times we're moved with criticism or complaints, but but God loves people. Do you know every person on the globe right now is a candidate for the grace of God to transform their life? They were created by God. They are being impacted by by the activity of God at times that we are so unaware of because God loves them and extends his grace. Do you know there is a wave of revival in our nation, a spiritual awakening, not in our nation, but in our world right now, everywhere but North America and parts of Europe because God loves people and they're turning to Christ by the millions. That's that's so wonderful. They might be people we would say were out of his reach, God loves people. So as you look at this prophetic panoramic view and you begin to look at it through the eyes of the Old Testament, it becomes obvious that each person on the list is important to God. And the other thing is, every person in the list has a story. I've told my sons repeatedly, I've learned things even from transients I knew were lying to me to get me to help them get from point A to point B as a pastor. But once we got past all of that and we got into their true story, I learned some things. And I learned some things about the grace of God in my life. Every person is loved by God. Every person has a story and and every person came from a family every person carries baggage every person is bruised and wounded but every person is loved by God so when we look at this list it should bring great comfort to us that if, if they were candidates of the activity of God, then we too can be impacted by God because he loves people. And especially in this list, each person, not of their own merit, but because of the grace of God, had a part in the eternal plan of redemption. Not because of how great they were, but how great and gracious our God is. So that underlines underlies everything I'm going to say as we explore this together, that God loves people. But then it goes beyond that. 
God loves people and works through them with providential precision. Providential precision. Now what we're going to see as we dig into these verses now is you're never going to hear an echo of God saying, oops, they weren't supposed to do that. Oh, I should have chosen this person. Oh, the story would be so much better if I shift it this way. No, he works with providential precision in bringing about what he desires to bring about. So a Jewish reader, when they read this, would be aware of the people in the Messianic prophecies. So let's, let's look at a few of them. First of all, it's moving from Abraham to David to the Babylonian captivity to Christ. So it begins here with Abraham in verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Now think about the image that brings to our mind. Isaac was a son of promise. He was a, a son of promise. Abraham and Sarah, I know their names were Abram and Sarai, but we're just going to call them Abraham and Sarah from this side of the story, were childless. They were well advanced in years, as the scripture tells us. They were beyond childbearing age. They were about to hit the century mark. They were moving rapidly toward that. Nobody in the room would have been as old as Abraham and Sarah when their story starts in the scripture. And God comes to this childless couple and he says to Abraham, I want you to pick up everything you own and all the people connected to you and I want you to move to a place that when you get there, I'll tell you this is it. Now can you imagine Abraham trying to explain that to Sarah that we're going to move? Where are we moving to? Not sure. Why are we moving? God told me to. Is it just me and you? No, we're all going to move out of our comfort zone. We're going to uproot our tent pegs and we're going to move. And we're going to live on the run and on the road until God tells us we've arrived there. Just think about that scene. And so they get impatient with God. They try to help him out through a, a concubine. But even beyond that, they, they have a child in those later years named Isaac, whose name means laughter because they laughed at the thought, Sarah laughed at the thought that she would bear a son which takes us to Genesis 15 as we watch the unfolding of this. In verses 1 through 6, here's God's promise of children to this childless man. 
After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham, or Abram, in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceeding great reward. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus? Then Abram said, Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. Which he's saying, This servant who was born in my household must be my heir. Then he says in verse 5, Then he brought Abram outside and said, Look now toward heaven, count the stars if you're able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Have you ever tried to count the stars? Standing out on a dark night in the country, they're innumerable. Not just that he's going to give him a son, he's going to give him innumerable heirs. But the first child in that lineage that God was promising would be named Isaac. So later in that chapter, after Isaac is born, you find this, I mean, in chapter 22, you find this scene. God calls Abraham to take Isaac and sacrifice him to God. A lot of question marks hit your mind at that point. Here's a son of promise. God calls Abraham to take this young man to sacrifice him, possibly about a 20-year-old young man and a 100-plus-year-old father. Do you see the, the faith Abraham had in God the Father and the faith that Isaac had in his father? I mean, I wouldn't, I'm not a betting man, but if those two went at it, I'd, I'd probably bet on the 20-year-old. But he submitted to his father. They go out to the mountain. And after three days of journey, it says in verse 4, Abram, Abraham lifted up his eyes and said to his young man that was with them, stay here with the donkey. The lad or the young man and I will go yonder and worship and we will come back to you. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and the two of them went together. Just picture that scene. This is one of those replays I would love to see. I I would love to see the filling of Abraham's eyes with tears as he laid the wood on his son and the fire was there to carry with them and and they were headed, unknown to Isaac, to his possible death, where Abraham would prove to God his love. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, it says in verse 7, his father and said, my father, and he said, here I am, my son. 
And he said, look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? I just picture a, a lump in Abraham's throat and a knot in his stomach when that question is asked. And Abraham said in verse 8, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. And the two of them went together. Then they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order, and he bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. Can you imagine the submission of Isaac as that was going I mean you have Isaac as that was going on? And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son, but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its thorns, by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up on, as a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord appears to him a second time in verse 15, saying in verse 17, In blessing I will bless you, and in multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Now there's a progression in the way that God talks to Abraham in chapter 22. He talks about your only son, the son that you love. All of those strong words, but then it comes, he, he gave everything to the Lord and submitted to him. So if someone was reading the genealogy and they heard the names Abraham and Isaac, uh, they would think immediately not just of Abraham but of his son because that was family to them. Kind of like in, in Louisiana, they might say to you, who do you belong to? Well, all of them belonged to Abraham and, and Isaac as the heirs of the promise of the promised son and there's a hint here about Christ the son was spared in this case the son would be given in the case of Christ and in that sense the Lord would provide the sacrifice for all time and all eternity for our sins 
And then it says in verse 18, let's read that again. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. How many nations of the earth? All the nations of the earth. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation evidenced in Revelation. But if you look at Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, I want you to see something there. Galatians 3, 16. Talking about the covenant God not only made with Abraham, but with us now. He says in Galatians 3.16, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. So even there in, in Genesis 22:18, there is a statement toward Christ that in his seed, the one that would come, he would bless all the nations of the earth. So Abraham gave birth through Sarah, his bride, to Isaac, a promised son. But then Abraham through Isaac to Jacob. Jacob is the next descendant in the genealogy. You find that there in verse 2. Isaac begot Jacob. Now let's look at Genesis 35, 9 through 11. We'll find a prophetic glimpse of the coming of the Messiah. Genesis 35. Genesis 35. And again, we're just skimming the surface. Genesis 35. Verses 9 through 11. Genesis 35, 9. Then God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram and he blessed him and God said to him your name is Jacob your name shall not be called Jacob anymore but Israel shall be your name so he called his name Israel and God said to him I am God almighty be fruitful and multiply a nation and a company of nations shall proceed from you and kings shall come from your body. Kings shall come from your body. Then look at Numbers chapter 24, just a couple of books to the right there. Numbers chapter 24. The first part of verse 17. Someone is presenting what is called an oracle and they say in verse 17, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. Meaning also his name Israel, a star shall come. So what a great 
prophetic hint there. In Abraham to Isaac, you see a, a promised son who is part of the son of promise to come. And then from Isaac to Jacob, you see a prominent star, a preeminent star who will come. He's not near. He's not here now. But a star shall come out of Jacob. There will be a brightness about Christ that will overshadow any bright figure in history. So you move from a promised son to a preeminent star that Christ will be and all of that would have come up in their minds because in connecting all of this they would know how the prophecies were stated through these people to fulfill the coming of the Messiah. And so here you get a glimpse of how the Bible all comes together here. And you know that Jacob there in verse 2 says, And Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. You remember the, the mixed up mess Jacob's family was? Two sisters, Rachel and Leah, two concubines, children born from each. But the one in the genealogy here is Judah. Let's look at what connects him in prophecy of the coming of the Messiah. Judah, Isaiah, no, not Isaiah, Genesis 49. 10, near the end of the book of Genesis, 49.10. Because Judah symbolizes a blessed and honored tribe, and his descendants will be blessed in a special way. And it says in verse 10, of Genesis 49.10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes and to him shall be the obedience of the people. But the scepter shall not depart from Judah. You know what the scepter was? The symbol of kingship. So just look at the prophecies that, that come to bear on these first two verses. Abraham begot Isaac, the son of promise. Isaac begot Jacob, who points to the star of preeminence. And then Jacob begot Judah, the scepter of permanence. Be there forever. Isn't that amazing? Nothing by accident. All by providential precision. And it didn't just begin when Abraham was born. We back up. It didn't even just begin when Adam was born. It, it, it or birth, or created. It, it goes into eternity past because 
before the beginning of time, throughout eternity, God's plan was in place. And it's just coming to play here. So just imagine a non-believing Jewish person hearing the genealogy of Jesus or reading it and saying, okay, so far, I get it. It's all about the promised son. It's all about the the preeminent star. It's all about the permanent scepter. It's all about that providential precision. But then it, it goes even further, and this will be the final thing we look at today. God loves people and works through them with providential precision beyond the brokenness and failure of their past. This list in Matthew chapter 1 is not a who's who of great people. It's a who's who of broken people, failures that belong to a great God. And you might feel like you're a second level believer if you've put your faith and trust in Christ because because you're not completely fixed. You're still broken. You you still fail. Well, Well, guess what? We all live in that realm, don't we? We all still have issues and we all still have hurts and we all have problems and and pains and pressures. It's not about how great we become, although God's healing is a continual process in our lives. It's all about the greatness of God. And none of us are an accident. We're all a part of that providential precision the family you're in, the people you're connected to, the place you live, all of that is prophetically in place through precision in your life to bring you to the person of Jesus Christ. So I want you to think about some of the brokenness and failure in their past. Well, we start with Abraham and Sarah, remember, he he lies and asks her to play like she's his sister to keep them from killing him and pretty deceptive. He tried to fix things for God. Have you ever done that? And, And then you have to live with the results of that when the promise comes. So the whole time they they should have been enjoying Isaac, they had to deal with Ishmael, the the child born out of disobedience to God. Then just think about Isaac and Rebekah. They they had parental partiality, we would call it. Now, if you have siblings, have you ever thought that your parents loved the other kid more than they loved you? Or you played that card knowing it probably wasn't true? But in their case, it was true. I mean, it's, it's stated up front in Scripture. If you read Genesis 25, 26, it, it's obvious that they played favorites. Isaac loved Esau, the twin of Jacob, because he was an outdoorsman. He was a hunter. He was a man's man. And, and Isaac loved and favored him. 
Rebekah, on the other hand, loved and favored Jacob. And so they're, they're in a fractured family, aren't they? They're, they're fractured over the kids. And it's obvious, it's so obvious, it's, it's stated in Scripture. It plays out in their story. Now, Jacob loved to, to cook. One day he's fixing stew, and we, we find the story in Genesis 25, if you want to look there, but we find out that Jacob lives up to his name, supplanter or deceiver. He wants to get Esau's birthright. Now, the birthright in the Bible was very important. And the Jews recognized all of this when they saw that it moves from Isaac to Jacob. You see, the, the natural way this should have flown, flowed was through Esau, the firstborn. Esau was barely the firstborn. He came first and Isaac was grabbing at his heel. I mean, Jacob was. It's hard to think when you've been God all week, okay? So I'm stumbling through some of this, but it should have been Esau. But Esau comes in from hunting. He smells the stew and he said, I would love to have a pot of stew. And Jacob said, no problem, give me your birthright and I'll give you a pot of stew. Well, the birthright meant that of the two sons, the older son would have more at the death of the father, just like in the story of the prodigal son. He would get twice as much as the younger son. But he was so drawn to that stew, he trades his birthright for a pot of stew. And we might think, well, that was so foolish. How many of us have given away our hearts and our lives and our minds to things that were going to destroy us, that would lessen who we are? So that's what he does. So now Jacob has the birthright and their position and the birth order in all practical purposes is switched. Then, in chapter 27, there's this family plot, and I'm not talking about burial plot, but Isaac is old and he can't see very well. And so Isaac's bride, Rebekah, comes to Jacob and says, let's trick your father and deceive him so you can get the blessing pronounced over you rather than Esau. So while Esau was gone, mom and Jacob begin to plot. And the end result is he comes into his father who can't see he puts on some of Esau's clothes. He puts fur on his hands because Esau's name meant Harry. And he said, you don't sound like Esau. And he leaned over where he could smell the scent of Esau and he could feel the hair on his arm. And they deceived Isaac. And Isaac pronounced the blessing over Jacob. 
You know the Hebrew word for that, rascal? That's what it is, not really. He was a rascal, we might say in East Texas. He, he was a deceiver, yet, yet he's in this line along with his father Isaac and his grandfather Abraham. They were people who were broken and were failures in life at times and God overcame all of that brokenness and failure in their lives to to bring about his purpose and his plan through them. And then you come to to Judah. What a sordid tale that is with he and Tamar. Immediately they would know that story having been schooled in the Old Testament scriptures It says there that Jacob begot Judah and his brothers and Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Judah was Tamar's father-in-law. His son died. In the Jewish culture, if, if a man died without having children, and especially a male child, that they were childless, the brother would take the sister-in-law as his bride and have children with her on behalf of the departed brother. Well, that didn't happen. Even though that was encouraged, it didn't happen. So Tamar dresses up like a harlot and she comes and seduces the father of her deceased husband and becomes pregnant with twins. Perez and his brother. Do you see that? that sordid tale that happens there. And it's through those twins that the line continues. That would have gotten people's attention. Then it says that Perez beget or begot Hezron, Hezron begot Ram, Ram begot Amenadab, Amenadab begot Nashon, and Nashon begot Salmon, and Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. Now here's Rahab. She is also a Gentile, a non-Jew, just like Tamar was, but, but she's factored in here. And she was a harlot, remember? She lived in the city of Jericho. You remember in the city of Jericho, everything took a downward turn because God brought the walls of Jericho down with one exception. The home of Rahab in the the wall uh, surrounding and protecting the city. She had saved the two spies and had delivered them out of the city when they were running and fleeing, she saved them, and a promise was made to her that God would spare her. And God spares her. 
And, and so she comes into the genealogy of Jesus, this recovering harlot. And her son's name is Boaz. And Boaz and Ruth get, get connected after the death of Ruth's husband and, and, and that all begins to happen. And then Obed by Ruth and, and then... Obed begot Jesse, the father of David. That's where we'll stop. But just think about this. Rahab the harlot was the mother-in-law of Ruth. You talk about two extremes in their stories. Here's a harlot. Here's a lady that's so devoted to her deceased husband that she won't leave her mother-in-law. As a matter of fact, she makes a vow to her mother-in-law that has and it's okay to do this, but has been used in wedding ceremonies. Entreat me not to leave you. Your people shall be my people. Your God shall be my God. Where you lodge, I will lodge. And where you stay, I will stay. Two extremes, but, but that's the mother-in-law of Ruth and the great, great grandmother King David when you get to the next level of the genealogy. So if, if people ask me, tell me about your church family. I'm tempted at times to say we have a great church family. There are some great people in our church. But you know the reality? That's not true. We are not a great church family. We are not great individuals, myself included. We are broken. We are people of failure. But we serve a great God, and that makes this a great place. And so we're not out in our community looking for perfect people because they would be so out of place among us, wouldn't they? And there are no perfect people. We're looking for broken people who have yet to experience the touch and the transforming power of Jesus Christ. So how does Rahab tie into the New Testament? Let's close with this. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31. Immediately when you hear Hebrews 11, you know that's the roll call of faith or the hall of faith the very last one mentioned as an individual is Rahab. Now just think about this. This story in Hebrews 11 is focusing on people that were mightily used and blessed of God. There's all of these great people in, in the Jewish minds, but here in Hebrews, they come to the end, and it says in verse 31, by faith... The harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe in Jericho when she had received the spies with peace. God spared her. Why? Because of her goodness and her heritage and her pristine character in her past? No, God spared her because he is a gracious God. And what a great picture here. God doesn't use people who have it all together he helps people and tries to bring them together by the power of his Holy Spirit 
And so Rahab is mentioned there, but not just there as an example of a person of faith. If you turn to the next book past Hebrews and you look in James chapter 2, you find her as a prime example used by James in discussing faith and works and salvation. In James chapter 2, beginning in verse 18, he says this, James 2, 18, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works and by works faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled which says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him or credited to him as righteousness. He was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. So here's the order. Changing what you do does not change who you are. Works can't transform you. You got to have it in the right order. Changing who you are will change what you do. Why? Because faith produces works. We don't do good things and do godly things to earn our salvation. We do that to express our salvation. And the only true evidence of a changed heart is a changed life. Have you ever heard someone say, yeah, I'm a Christian? What was the first thing you began to expect? You began to inspect their fruit, didn't you? And you thought, I don't think you understand a Christian can't be driven by sin. A, a, a Christian's never living contrary to the purposes and plans of God. A, a, a true Christian's not allergic to worship. A, a true Christian has some sort of works in their life that expresses who they are. And without faith, you're lost. Without works, James said without Works, faith, is dead. So I wonder, are you dead or alive? Do you have a living faith in Christ? If you have a living faith in Christ, then Christ is living through you by the person of the Holy Spirit. 
If he has truly changed your heart, he is not only changing who you are, he's changing what you do. Because God works from the inside out, not the outside in like society would tell us. Society would say if you just looked better, felt better, lived better, acted better, worked out better, etc., then all of this yuck in your life would go away. The reality is that yuck is sin, and sin has to be dealt with by the Savior. And you can't solve that by working from the outside in. Only God can solve that from working inside out. And the example used here was Rahab. She exercised her faith in a transformed life. And therefore, she gives us hope in the genealogy. So listen to the first part of that sentence again. God loves people and works through them with providential precision beyond the brokenness and failure in their past. If you're a Christian today and you've put your faith and trust in Christ alone and you've made that public and you are following him and living for him, here's how the sentence should sound to you. God loves you and works through you with providential precision beyond the brokenness and failure in your past. You might say, well, I've got a lot of things to take care of before I could come to Christ. No, Christ can take care of everything. I know people that 30 years ago told me that, and they're still trying to get it together so they can come to Christ. And they never will till they come to the point where they realize I am broken, I am a failure, my sin has destroyed me, I fall short of the glory of God, I need God, and only through Christ the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I'm asking you today, have you had a changed heart that's produced a changed life? If it has not, you really ought to check whether you have come to know Jesus or not. We would like to thank you for joining us for this message from First Baptist Church in Crockett, Texas. First Baptist desires to be a house of prayer with a heart for people, making a difference by making disciples from our neighborhood to the nations. If you would like more information about this ministry, please visit www.firstcrockett.org. Until next time, may God's blessings be upon you.